Jesus Christ's name we pray. And the people of God said together, Amen. As always, if you want to follow along with the notes that I've put in the version, a Bible event, you go to version, the Bible app, click on the hamburger, so they call those three little lines. You'll see events. Automatically it pulls up us because you're sitting right here, and you can follow along with everything that's going on in the sermon. Also, those of you who are watching us at home, the same thing for you. You're able to follow along with all the notes that I have, and there are extra things that I've put inside of there today. Also, I want to make sure that you get your picture made today. This is not a St. Valentine's Day booth. That's over with, and those pieces. This is out there because it's about seeing all the people. And I want to see all the people. That means you. I want to see you, and I want to be able to you to see that you are loved. That's what it says. You're loved at Good Shepherd, but it doesn't matter about Good Shepherd at all. It matters the fact that you're loved. Sometimes we don't see each other. We don't recognize each other. Sometimes we fail to even get our picture made because somehow we're just not the picture kind of people. Well, your picture is on the refrigerator of God. It's important to remember that. That you are important. No more important than anyone else, but no less important either. So I hope you'll get your picture made because I want to see all these and be able to see who we are when we look at one another as we continue to talk about See All the People, our sermon series. So most of us have probably heard about the Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard about the Sermon on the Plain? I don't mean a plane flying in the sky. I mean a flat, level place. Today's scripture from Luke 6, 17 through 26 looks like the same thing as Sermon on the Mount, but it's not. It's an entirely different message. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew was given before Jesus chose his 12 disciples. The Sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, was preached after he chose them. This is what it says in in the scripture leading up to this. It says, Jesus had spent a whole night alone on the mountain praying to God. Verse 12. Then he called his disciples to draw near, and from them he chose 12 apostles. So there are more than just 12 disciples at that point. He chose 12 to become his apostles. That's the context for this scripture. And so what happens next, it's important to know what has just happened. So then the verse begins, Jesus came down from the hill with the apostles, the 12 he had chosen, and stood on a level plain. A level place. The location on a level plain gave Jesus a vantage point of equality. In this position, he was not above the people. He could maintain good eye contact with the crowd. In addition, he could really look out and see who was in the crowd. He could sense their expectations, enabling him to prepare himself to respond appropriately by reading their body language and their visual cues. I mean, imagine looking through the eyes of Jesus who encounters this great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. 
in viewing the crowd, and crowd is the word we're focused on during this sermon series, Jesus saw the crowd was made of people who were his disciples, including the ones he had not chosen to be apostles. Think about that. Others were faithful followers, and still others, people who knew about Jesus and had come from far off to be able to see him and hear him. Because it says in verse 18, they had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. These people not only wanted to see Jesus, they came to hear Jesus' words and then be healed of the various ailments they had. Just like last week, the writer of Luke chooses to use the word crowd. That's the word in the Greek. Which suggests that they were many, there were many people gathered around Jesus. A crowd. Now Jesus was used to being surrounded by crowds wherever he went. He was always surrounded by people. And people, when they are in crowds, act differently. Sometimes in good ways, but many times usually in bad ones. Think about the crowds on Black Friday and the ability people had to be able to trample one another to get the best deal on a flat screen television. What allows somebody to do that or even injure somebody for that? It's crowd think. When we become a crowd, we think differently. There are many characteristics of a crowd. And we can gain some insight here by looking at a few characteristics of crowd behavior from psychology. First, when a person becomes part of a crowd, there is anonymity. Anonymity allows the members of a crowd to act as though they do not know each other. Because they probably don't. Or even if they do. This kind of grants each person a certain freedom to act on his or her own behalf. Not consider what somebody else thinks or does. Second, many times people's behavior in a crowd is emotional. It's usually impulsive. Think about all the things that happen in riots, especially when there's a verdict handed out or something happens. People will go and break windows and destroy things, even their neighbors. What makes it so easy to be able to do that, to hurt others, to, you know, stop traffic on I-24 and do donuts in the middle of the interstates? Crowds do that. For example, all in this crowd were trying to touch him. They're all trying to reach out and touch Jesus. Can you imagine being Jesus where everybody's trying to reach out and touch you all the time? And what that would feel like? They're exercising their freedom to claim a portion of Jesus' power by touching him. Their anonymity in the crowd allowed them to drop any personal inhibitions that might have prevented them from touching Jesus. I mean, would you want to reach out and touch Jesus? Would you be trying to grasp on and grab on to Jesus if you were in the crowd? Seems kind of weird, doesn't it? And yet, don't we do that sometimes? We take from Jesus. We grab from Jesus. We expect from Jesus. We don't ask. We just take. So like in communion, we talk about the fact of receiving the body of Christ. We don't take a piece of bread. We receive it. We don't take his life. He gave it for us. But in the crowd, we kind of think that 
We can do anything we want. Third, a crowd often becomes impersonal, losing its individuality. In the story, the crowd began to act as a group coming to Jesus and receiving his ministry. But there's one particular characteristic that was special to this crowd. This was not an ordinary crowd. They were neither angry nor unruly. This was an expectant crowd. Expectant. They were full of anticipation because they knew that since Jesus had previously healed sick people, surely he could and would heal them. And their expectation was threefold. They wanted to see Jesus and they wanted to hear his comforting words, but most of all, they wanted to be made whole. They wanted to be healed. And Jesus' healing ministry was not limited just to the physical, but mentally, spiritually. To be made whole is what they looked for. But it also says those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Can you imagine the excitement that was generated by these miraculous activities? People are being healed all over the place and people are touching him and, it's, and they're all reaching out and trying to grab him and every time they touch him then something happens and all these things are happening. How would you describe the scene? How do you picture the scene in your head? What part of the crowd do you most identify with? Are you eager to hear Jesus? Are you hoping to be healed? Are you skeptical? Are you desiring to see a miracle? Everybody likes a miracle to see all those kind of things happen. Is it something else? Jesus had the power of touch. He says, all the crowd, all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. The people touched Jesus rather than being touched by Jesus. He wasn't touching them. They were touching him. And their expectation of healing was based on their belief and the power that Jesus would heal the sick. No doubt this crowd was not unlike the crowds of people that come to our churches. And the crowds of people who don't come. They have expectations. This crowd of people came to Jesus with open hearts and open minds and open doors. And deep in their hearts they felt that somehow... Jesus would empathize with them, that he would want to heal them, to help them. In their minds, they were open to the possibility that Jesus might lead them through his teaching to a new way of living, of believing, and becoming what he created them to be. And finally, they wanted to be welcomed into the doors of Jesus' ministry They wanted to find a place to belong. We all want to find a place to belong. Amen? We just want to belong. Some place to rest. To not wear the face that we put on outside. To be who we are. To be broken. Tired. Unsure. To be loved. And Jesus accepted the people in the crowd just as they were. He was not trying to change them or do anything. He doesn't do any of that. He just accepts them where they are. Are we willing to accept our neighbors who have not yet come? 
while ministering to those who are already here? Because the church always has a hard time doing that. Either we focus too hard on those inside the doors or we focus too hard on those outside the doors. And yet all are part of the crowd. We need Jesus as much inside of these doors as we do outside of these doors. Amen? What about the crowds that come to our church? When you look out into our congregation, whom do you see? That's when I was like, with this, I mean, who do you see? It's really interesting to, just to watch these pictures being made and who gathers together and who does it. Individuals, families, friends. Who do you see? What are their needs? Everybody's needs are different when we gather here. Who are the people who come to our church? Do they reflect the neighborhoods around Good Shepherd? You know, there's some people who actually drive from one place, like Gallatin, for instance, and they drive all the way to church in Nashville. Where they don't know anybody at all besides people in the church. They don't know the neighborhood at all. Nor do they know anybody back home because they're always going to church somewhere totally different. Do you really know the community around this place? Representing our neighborhoods. Sure, surely these are all folks who want to hear a word from the Lord. They want to be healed. We all come with certain expectations of what God is going to do for us and who God is. And then, who are the folks who do not come? Who are they? Do we truly welcome all people regardless of their differences? I mean, truly do we do that? Can we gather people who we don't agree with or don't understand? You see, these doors right here aren't meant to keep people out. I don't ask any one of you when you come in here where your spiritual life is at or what you've done wrong in your life or what sins you've committed before you ever, ever let you in the door. These doors are open to everyone to come and to be present in the love of Christ. No qualifications. doesn't matter whether you're straight or gay, whether you're black, white, It doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. All those things are different functions. The the Jesus Christ that we know, everyone's welcome. Everyone has a place. When we believe differently in many, many, many things, if I was to sit you down at a table and ask you to explain your beliefs to somebody else across the other side of the table on anything from politics to religion to parenting to whatever, I guarantee you, you're going to differ. We just don't talk about it. We don't make mention of any of those things that we believe. Although John Wesley didn't didn't say this, our founder didn't say this, I found out. Much like Francis of Assisi didn't say, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. He didn't say that. A lot of the quotes you think people said, they actually didn't say. Did these words still hold true as United Methodists? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, Liberty, and in all things, charity. It's who we are. Like Jesus, we are called to accept people as they are and to strive to develop a Christian relationship with them. That's the place where you then begin to focus on things that you believe may be wrong in somebody's life. Though I would accept that you probably need to focus on your own wrong things first before you go to somebody else. But it's in relationship. 
It's not being present here to be loved by God where we are and who we are without qualification. Not only did Jesus heal people, he also taught people. That's where change happens. Change happens not with us thinking that somehow we're right and somebody else may be wrong. Change happens not from us. It happens from God. God makes the change. God changes lives and changes hearts. Not us. That's not our job. Our job is to love. To love. And be present as part of the crowd and community. Jesus perceived their unexpressed needs. Looking into the eyes of his disciples. And this is the important part. This next part of this text. It says he looked into the eyes of his disciples. Not the crowd. So he's talking to his disciples. Who he just called. And maybe the ones he didn't call. And talks about teaching them about many ways in which they were blessed. You see, God will bless the people in spite of their status. When they align themselves with Jesus. He says, then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. And so he says you might be rejected, but rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. You see, in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is stressing that people who experience poverty and hunger and sorrow and hatred are special to God. Amen? If we look at the world right now in a place like Haiti where I went and where many of us went on mission trip. They are desperately in need of just trying to survive. All of the core farmers that we have supported that raise the chickens can't get any of their eggs to the kids in the schools because the schools are closed. They can't get any supplies because they can't get through the roads. All the roads are closed off. The gas is sky high. The price of food is skyrocketed. And all they're trying to figure out to do is survive tomorrow. While here in America... We have plenty of food most of the time. We have cars. We have roads. We have all these things. It's very hard for us to see what it means to be blessed. Because blessing to us means all of these other things. If you're looking for a scrap of food tomorrow, then very quickly you understand how much you need God in your life. It's not a secondary thing that you just do. And so these folks who are in poverty and hunger and sorrow and are hated are special to God. They are the ones that God looks out for because we don't need looking out for. It's our job to look out for those who do need looking out for. And God wants them to be special to us as well. That's the point of the blessing that Jesus is talking about. But then he shifts his focus from blessings to curses or woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. How did those words went over and met and exceeded the expectations of the crowd of understanding of who was blessed? 
You see, in our society, we, we automatically assume blessing means something. Like, if you drive a Mercedes-Benz and you drive a Toyota, Cam- a Toyota Corolla, then the person that has the Mercedes-Benz is somehow more blessed. That the larger your house is means somehow, you're more, somehow you are a better business person or somehow you have somehow raised a higher level of society than someone else. That the person who wears a tie and goes to work in a three-piece suit and the person that goes in a blue collar with their name on it and works someplace else is somehow different. When I was at Brentwood, which of course people here know Brentwood. I'm sure you know all about Brentwood. You think you know about Brentwood, but you really don't. But you think you do. One of the guys there were my best friends was a blue-collar worker guy with his name on his shirt. Worked in an automotive, auto lube place. He would come in every Wednesday night in his uniform, a little bit of dirt under his fingernails and everything else. He'd come in to be able to be in Bible study and to do all these things. I still remember that many years ago when, when one Sunday some of the kids from the youth group made fun of him for being a blue-collar worker. Because her parents had taught him that. It's the only place it comes from. And before you cast aspersions on Brentwood and those poor kids and everything else and all the rich people, let me tell you something. The same thing would happen here in Hendersonville the same way. If I pulled somebody who didn't look like us into the room. We don't know what blessed really means. And Jesus is trying to tell them that because they feel the same way. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious teachers and scribes all had fancy clothes and fancy houses and lots of food to eat. And everybody looked up to them. And which of these four woes is most convincing to you and most convicting? Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now for you'll be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, mourning and weeping. You see, in this sermon, Jesus issues a warning to those who are rich and comfortable. And rich is not over there somewhere else. Most studies show that we always think somebody's rich who has about $20,000 more than we do. No matter who you are. I don't care what level you are. It's always something else over there. We are rich. Especially by the world standards. They live on less than a dollar a day. We put that in a Coke machine without even thinking about it. He talks about a series of woes and signaling the possibility of deep suffering and misfortune and grief because he tells us a life of discipleship is not about popularity. It's not about what we look like or what we wear or what we drive or where we live. Discipleship is not about those things he's telling them. Remember who he's talking to, not the crowd. He's talking to who? The disciples. He's teaching his leaders about what it means, not the crowd. It's about living the truth that Jesus teaches us. That it's better to give your life away in service, just as Jesus shared his spirit with those who touched him and believed in his teachings. He didn't turn somebody away because they touched him and said, Whoa, what are you doing touching me? Lay off me. He let the power issue forth from him to heal them all the way. And this text makes me think about how can we offer words and actions of the community around the church that will help the crowd experience a sense of being blessed by God? How do we help everybody who isn't getting their picture made today to know this message and to see this in themselves, that you are loved? 
How does that word get to every person in our community? There's a famous quote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men and women to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Robert, you know that quote? When we talk about engaging our community, we must find and embrace a vision rooted in a deep love for all of God's people. All of them. Not unlike a love and yearning for a vast and endless sea. Love that is pulling us forward, giving us the courage and the willingness to go wherever God leads us. Amen? Our job is love. Not to sort them out. It's love. And what expectations does the community have of Good Shepherd? How do we demonstrate kingdom values in our engagement with the community around us? Jesus was reminding everyone in the crowd they were made in God's image. That we are all people of dignity and worth. That everyone matters to God and is loved by God. And we show that by our actions or our inactions. And who we think we can exclude from our doors and who we do not. And then see all the people we're called to extend love to those near and far. Those we love and those we are quick to label as unlovable. Those with whom we agree or disagree. None of those things are qualifications for who comes to the grace of God. Sometimes we stop right there and decide who will come to our doors and who will not and be allowed in. This week, United Communications came out with a survey about our theological perspectives and beliefs and practices across the United Methodist Church. They had respondents across all areas of the country, both men and women, all of whom which do not serve in leadership in the church in any way. This is the interesting part. They are folks who come on Sunday morning only, maybe come to Sunday school, Bible study, but they don't serve in any leadership capacity whatsoever. There's a link in the app this morning, and later this week I'll be sending it to the rest. But here's a few things that I got from this. First, we are a very diverse church across this country from a theological spectrum, from progressive to traditional to moderates in between. That I already knew. But second, this is what I didn't know as much. We have some bedrock things in common. In the survey, you'll see this. That the Bible is the inspired word of God. That Jesus was the Son of God. That he died on the cross to reconcile us to God and was resurrected from the dead. And that God's grace is available to every person no matter what we do or who we are. On that, United Methodists agreed. Those, my friends, are the essentials and basics of the faith. Because then Jesus leads us with one last thing. Woe to you when all speak well of you. For that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Woe means look out, or uh uh-oh, or oh no. Jesus is giving a serious warning here to the disciples and to us. He wants us to watch out for how we behave. No matter what our disagreements might be, or what we might believe or not believe, there is no license, no right, no ability for us to trash each other. There is no ability for us to behave in horrible ways to one another, no matter what we might find ourselves in. 
in our belief system. He does not give us that right, that somehow because we think we're right, that we can tell somebody else in horrible ways. Respect is the number one thing in any understanding of Jesus. Respect and love and relationship. Are we trying to be popular in the way of the world? Do we want everyone to like us, think that we're cool? Do we want to be right instead of being in relationship? If we do the right things, that's good. But if we go against what Jesus teaches, that's bad. The false prophets are people who said everything was just fine when it really was wrong. Jesus calls us to be wise and truthful. Genuine goodness makes us a good, loyal friend. And here's where we fall apart usually. Because we think that when he says we must do what he teaches us to be right, here's what we think that is. We think that's somehow beliefs. But that's not what Jesus ever talked about. Particular set of beliefs or ways that we have to do things. Rights and regulations and rules. And everything we say and do, the person we should be trying to please is God. Amen? I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please God. I'm here to allow the words that God has given to me to hopefully speak to us and challenge us and convict us and guide us. I answer to God. And I hope that somehow I speak the truth from God. And so how do we please God? See, this is the answer. The answer is not about what we believe, what we think, or what somebody else is wrong and their position or that sort of thing. The answer is this. Jesus himself said it. He boiled down everything that he was saying in his entire ministry into two things. He said it. He boiled it down to the greatest commandment, which is what? To love God and love your neighbor. He said everything hangs on this. Nothing else. Not our beliefs about baptism or sexuality or color or anything else in the world. He said it falls on these things. It was the last commandment he gave to the disciples at the last supper before the cross. Remember it on Monday, Thursday. Monday means new commandment. I give to you a new commandment that you will love one another as I have loved you. It's the last words he says before he goes to the horrific death on the cross. You think that probably that's the most important thing to him that he wanted to make sure he got across before he left the disciples. And if that's not enough, look at what verse 27 says. It's not part about today. But I say to you, who are willing to hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. So even if you think the person across the aisle or across the country is your enemy, that still doesn't give you the right to treat them any differently than the person that you love. He makes it clear. You are to love your enemies as much as you love the most lovable person in your life. That gives us no right and no ability to do the sorting and the separation. There are some similarities between the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke's emphasis is on sympathy with the poor and the duty of spiritual kindness. In a world in which you can be anything, be kind there is no reason no excuse for anything else 
Just as God seeks us, Jesus wants us to seek God with open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Surely God wants us to see all the people in the crowd. Minister to all of them. You can't minister to people if you don't have them with you. You can't minister to those who aren't here. With Jesus, there are no hidden figures. You'll be able to see them if you want to see them. There are no those people, you know? Those people. We don't want those kinds of people around here. We don't want those kinds in our neighborhood. We don't want those kinds somewhere over here. We don't want those people. However you define those people. It doesn't exist with Jesus. No one is beyond the love of God and is all are worthy of a place to belong. Amen? But this is what the scripture says to us. And it's very hard. And it's the hardest thing in the world to live out. Now John Wesley did say this in the sermon on Catholic spirit. And I've included that link too. When he was talking about all these beliefs and how they disagreed and every church was fighting it out and everything else. This is the scripture. This is the sermon that he wrote. And one part of it after he talked about baptism and infant baptism versus believer's baptism and all this. He says this. Let all these smaller points stand aside. Let them never come into sight. If your heart is as my heart, if you love God and all mankind, I ask no more. Give me your hand. This is the basis. Whether we're traditional or progressive or moderates, whether we are Republicans or Democrats, or independents. Whether we are drug abusers, or the most saintly person in the world, the bedrock is that all matter to God, and all are worthy of a place to belong. That was the message that Jesus was trying to give to the crowd and to his disciples. And that is the message that I hope we hear as a church and as a community of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, this last song is, you know, more than anything, it's a prayer as much as it's a song. It's a not yet reality many times. It's sort of like saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It goes together in the same way. Lord, I want to be a Christian. Lord, I'm not a Christian. Lord, I am a Christian. Lord, I want to be a Christian. So as you sing this song, it's very familiar. Listen, really think about the words that you're singing. What does it mean to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ? Not a follower of Good Shepherd, not a follower of the United Methodist Church, not a follower of even the Christian Church. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Because that's relationship, not religion. How do we live out being a follower of Christ in every moment of our lives? Let us stand and sing. Number 402.
Do you see a verse in there where it says, Lord, I want to be more judging in my heart? Do you see a part in there where it says, Lord, I want to be more hurtful to people in my heart? Do you see a part where it says, Lord, I want to be more right in my heart? Loving. Holy. I want to be more like Jesus. That means leaving behind who we are and taking on who he is. You ever see Jesus attack people except for the Pharisees for the most part, people who are hurting each other? You ever see him take out his friends? Even when they abused him, did you ever see him once ever say, you know what, I'm right and you're wrong? Once. Not unless he was in a relationship. Even the woman who was caught in adultery and sin, what did he say to her? You're freed. You're loved. But go and sin no more. My friends, live like Jesus. And the world will know a much different good shepherd and much different Christianity. Get your picture made. Jesus loves you. Amen.